As we look at our text this morning, we kind of get to have a, uh, a bit of a continuation off of our text last week, looking at the transfiguration. Uh, if you recall, Jesus goes up on, um, on this mountain to pray, and uh, there are kind of some events there that are um, supernatural, uh, where the Lord meets them, and um, some, some amazing things happen. But now he's on the way down and is about to have this uh, encounter uh, with this, uh, you know, uh, boy who is uh, filled with an unclean spirit. There's demonic activity at, uh, at play here. And uh, one of the things that you'll find, and kind of something I mentioned loosely um, as we spoke last week, is there's kind of like throughout the scriptures, there's all these, um, these kind of like important moments that happen on mountains, that like happen throughout the, the time, uh, throughout the scriptures, and all the way dating back to the Old Testament, going all the way, you know, on, onward. Uh, but one of the things that happens pretty frequently, a, a pattern that you're likely to observe, is that usually what happens is there's some sort of situation here where uh, there's a mountain at play, uh, something is happening on a mountain, there's a, a, a great height or a, a point of elevation, a peak involved, a, a cliff, um, a, 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 a pinnacle of the temple, many of these things are, are taking place on uh, elevated platforms, and then connected to that, you find these moments where uh, right after that, or at the same time sometimes, are connected to the declaration of uh, sonship, a father-son relationship taking place, something uh, that is there in, in the story that is connected to a relationship. There's a son in a declaration of who that son is, but then immediately after that, uh, you'll find this pattern that pops up where uh, after the, the, the mountaintop experience happens, after this declaration of sonship, then right after that, then you find demonic activity and then you find victory. So it kind of happens in this, there's a mountain, then there's like kind of this idea of sonship, and then there's this idea of demonic activity, and then we find uh, victory on the other side of that. It kind of happens again and again throughout the scriptures. Even if you just look back at uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, if you look back at the introduction of Jesus' ministry, we find uh, all the way back in, uh, in chapter 4, uh, in verse 28, he's there, of course, teaching in the synagogue, and uh, he's, he, he is with God's people in God's house, and he begins to uh, introduce his ministry, and he starts reading uh, Isaiah 61. He picks up the scroll there, and he uh, you know, says, Today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. He's making this, this uh, declaration of who he is in uh, the house of the Lord. And, and uh, Luke uh, 4.28 tells us, when he heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Right? So they're all mad at him now because he's declared who he is. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So you kind of find this spot where uh, there's, there is this kind of mountainous region at play uh, where, you know, they're dragging him out to a high place to throw him off. 
Why? Because he is declaring who he is. He says, I'm the son. I am, uh, I am f- the fulfillment of the scripture. And so they're all mad. They drag him out there to get rid of him. They drag him out to that place to throw him off and to be rid of him. Now, of course, uh, this would be something that would be opposing Jesus' explicit mission. To, to oppose his sonship is a type of uh, demonic approach. These people were filled with wrath in that. These are things that are being influenced by the enemy. But right before this, okay, I want, to, I want you to catch this, right before Jesus goes into the synagogue and, and does this, uh, remember, he is out in the wilderness with Satan. There, he's out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, and Satan meets him there to tempt him in all these ways. And the last of the temptations there is that, uh, you know, Satan takes him up to this kind of high place. And he's like, hey, uh, you, know, uh, you know, on the temple, he's like, if you, th- if you throw yourself off of this, uh, you know, the angels will, it will prove your sonship. The angels will, will, uh, will, will catch you. You know, this is what the scriptures say. So in a sense, he's, he's telling uh, Jesus to prove that he's the son. The sonship is at play. There's a great uh, height, an element there of, of uh, elevation. And he's saying, uh, you just throw yourself off and it will show that that's who you are. But now in our passage that we were just looking at in Luke chapter 4, he declares who he is and the people are like, we're going to throw you off the cliff because we're done with that. He, Jesus has not tempted himself to uh, throw off the cl- be thrown off the cliff himself or to jump off himself, but rather now the enemy's attacking a different way. Okay, well, I'll throw you off the cliff if you're not going to throw yourself off the cliff. I'm going to make it happen. And so you begin to kind of see these things connected to uh, Jesus' own work. And, and what do they say in the synagogue when Jesus is reading this? Jesus says, today in, 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 your, uh, in your assembly, in this assembly, this is being fulfilled. And what do they all say? They say, isn't this Joseph's son? So there's that sonship narrative that's at place where all of a sudden it's like, well, well, he's not who he says he is. He's the son of Joseph. We know who this guy is. So there's, there's these great heights, elevation, the sonship. Uh, there's demonic activity that opposes his mission. And then, of course, there's victory. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 30 tells us that he passes through their midst and goes away. He has victory. He's like, okay, he walks right through them and is able to avoid it. If you uh, fast forward a little bit um, further, you find in uh, chapter 6 of Luke, you find that he is again uh, here choosing, uh, choosing his disciples. He's uh, amongst uh this group of people, he's up on a mountain. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we read this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all, uh, he continued all night in prayer to God. So again, there's this, he's on the mountain. He's communing. He's having fellowship with the Father. So there's this father-son relationship that's taking place, something that Jesus often did. He would steal away in order to commune with the Lord. What happens in verse 17 as he comes down the mountain? He came down and stood with them on a level place, and with a great crowd of his disciple, uh, and with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, and the, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So he goes up on the mountain. He communes with the Father. This is father-son relationship. He comes down. He immediately is dealing with a great crowd of people people who have unclean spirits. He demonstrates his authority and power over them. He has victory. So this pattern happens again and again and again. Uh, We find 
again, if you fast forward to chapter 8, uh, in verse 27, as he makes his way across uh, the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, he calms the storm, he's declaring who he is. They're wondering, who is this guy? Uh, 8.27, Jesus gets out of the boat and he meets this man who uh, lives in, uh, in the, the tombs. Verse 27, uh, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So again, you have both of these things taking place simultaneously. Instead of Jesus going up to the mountain right away, uh, the, ma the man from the mountain comes down and, and encounters him. This guy who lives on the cliff sides, who, where they would uh, have tombs hewn out in the rock and, and they would bury people there. This crazy guy, he comes down and he, he, he is ready to fight Jesus right away. And he's opposing him, and so he's kind of the, the, the collection of, of all three of those things. He's this, this man from the mountain. He, this is, he's this man who, who is filled with an unclean spirit, and he's, he knows and is declaring who Jesus is. He says, uh, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So he's pulling it out there already. We read in verse 29 that Jesus has victory, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So, pow, Jesus wins, victory is done. And then we come to our text uh, from last week. They go up to the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. They are there. They, uh, Moses and Elijah show up, uh, and Peter's like, yo, let's build some tabernacles here. Uh, God shows up in this cloud and envelops them and declares, this is uh, my chosen one, my son. Listen to him. Right? So they're on the mountain, the sonship is declared, guess what's happening next? Unclean spirits. Right? We're, we're, we're continuing on in the trajectory. Here's what happens. They make their way back down, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Okay, this sounds like very similar to many of the other passages. They go up on the mountain, they come down from the mountain, there's a great crowd there. Jesus descends from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. Remember, they went up with him, so it's just like the tightest, smallest posse of disciples who are his inner circle, they're with him. And they go down to rejoin the other disciples, and when they arrive, this huge crowd meets them. Massive crowd meets them. And if, if you look briefly at the other Gospels, it t basically tells us that they're all arguing. They're all like squabbling with the disciples about like, ah, you hear all this commotion and hubbub and, and Jesus is like, what's going on here? Verse 38, and behold, a man from the, cried, from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. Okay, so here we go, right? So we've got the sonship declared on the mountain. Then we've got another sonship happening here down in the valley, right? This only son. Luke loves to mention the only son. He loves it. He, he like all throughout, remember? He, he's, he's constantly harping on this. And so the crowd meets him. There's this man who cries out to him. He requests that Jesus uh, look upon his son. Oh, I love this. I love this approach from this man because he doesn't try to explain or convince. He doesn't try to, to put it in this convincing terms. He simply tells Jesus, can you just look at him? I'm, he's like, I'm not, he doesn't ask for, for Jesus to heal him. He doesn't ask for Jesus to do anything. He just says, like, just, just look at him. 
glance over there. The man is trusting. He's trusting that when Jesus sees his child, when Jesus sees what's going on, he's going to understand the situation and be moved to work. He's going to feel compassion. He's going to say, I know what I need to do here. I think that this is a great, uh, a great um, prescription for us. Because a lot of times, we want to tell Jesus what to do. Jesus, I got in this whole thing. I want to debrief you about it. Uh, I made a PowerPoint deck. Here's the slides. Here's all the things you need to know. Here's like uh, all my R&D submitted to you. When a lot of times what we need to do is just say, like, can you, can you just, like, look at this? Because, like, I don't know what to do about this. I don't have, any, I don't have any, any wisdom, any discernment. I don't got good ideas. I want what you're going to do. So however you are going to diagnose this, Jesus, that's what I want. However you are going to work in this situation, that's what I want. It's a good lesson that we should learn from this man. To come with, with a heart of, of desperation and openness not trying to manipulate God, but just saying, look at this. Can you just look at this? You assess. You determine what's going on here. And as he looks, we find in verse 39, Behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So this child uh, is experiencing these deep symptoms where a spirit is said to seize him. He's crying out. It's convulsing. He's foaming at the mouth. It shatters him. That The idea there is that he's being uh, thrown around so that he's being bruised and, and being broken. Um, he's running into things. He's crashing down violently. But this child is not simply sick. Something deeper is happening. This is why the father describes this situation as a spirit seizing the child. If you look down to verse 42, you find it described as an unclean spirit and a demon. So we find that something supernatural is at work here. This unclean spirit, this demon, uh, brings destructive power to this child's life. It brings terror to those who are caring and loving on this child. And this is a way that we see what Satan's motive really is. He's not here to bless this child. He's not here to care for this child. He's not here to provide peace for this community. This is all about fear and terror. It's about bondage. It's about controlling and not letting this uh, child um, be of his own mind. He's enslaved. This is the type of, of perspective that, and, and approach that Satan brings. He comes to our lives trying to uh, bring us into a place where we are in bondage to him, where we are operating out of fear, where we are operating in a place where we are, uh, are likely to have the things that um, are in our lives uh, be taken from us. Because he's there to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's there to bring destruction into every life that he touches. We see this illustrated in what is done with this young child. You know, for you and I, we might look at this and be like, come on, it's a kid. Like, that's like off limits, 
right? He, he, he can barely defend himself. Satan doesn't care about that. He's here to, to, to harm, to bring destruction. This father tells us he'll be going through his life, and all of a sudden he'll cry out. It convulses him so he foams at the mouth. And it will not leave him alone. Now, as Luke writes, as he describes this, he uses, uh, he uses particular words and phrasings that are different than the other gospel writers do. Remember, uh, he is specifically not as medically precise as the other gospels. Right? You could read about this story in, in Matthew chapter 17 or Mark 9. He is not as uh, medically precise as the other Gospels. If you read the other Gospels, the, the, uh, the kind of common understanding, the kind of common thought you might come to would be like, okay, well, um, this guy probably has epilepsy. Like, this is what the situation is here. The other, other Gospels report the boy's experiences in this way. Um, they, re, they report uh, about the effects that this, this boy experiences. These, they kind of speaks more broadly and generally, but kind of speaks as if they're giving a report to a doctor. This happens and this happens. He gets thrown into the fire. He gets thrown into the water. All, like he, Luke hones in a little bit more specifically because he's speaking about a diagnosis. He's not speaking about these, these other symptoms that are on the, on the external. Because he understands what's happening here. He's a physician. And as a physician, he's not attributing this merely to a physical sickness. But rather, this is a supernatural diagnosis that's connected to a physical manifestation of this sickness. He says... This, this child, he convulses, he foams, he shatters, it won't leave him alone. He's describing it in such a way, whereas to give us uh, the understanding that, that this is what's going on, but it's the spirit, the unclean spirit that causes this. Perhaps this uh, demon is exploiting a physical ailment. That's with, well within the realm of possibility. He's, perhaps he's making it worse. But for Luke, he's trying to indicate to us that the cause of this is demonic activity. It's not just this boy is sick. Something deeper is going on here. In fact, he tells him it's a regular uh, occurrence. It will hardly leave him, he says. This happens all the time. The, uh, the demonic activity in his life is frequent. It's not there to give him a break. It's not there to make life easy. It's there to destroy. And so the father, he speaks to the disciples. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The previous efforts that the disciples had put forth uh, to cast out the demon failed. Uh, it seems like the, the nine who were left over were there, and Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus, and uh, these other guys were trying to, to work on casting out this unclean spirit, but they were, were, were unable to do so. But the father, he, he's begging them. He's like, you guys have to do something. He's desperate. He hopes that the disciples 
will be able to, to work in this situation to bring deliverance. But they failed to provide what he was seeking. He simply tells Jesus they couldn't do it. They could not. They could not accomplish this. Now, there's a wake-up call for everybody who's, who's there, who's listening. Everybody who's in the crowd. Because there's three things that, that are, are, are being demonstrated. There's a lack of three things. First, there's a lack of, of power and ability. The disciples, uh, despite the power that has... Uh, and authority that's been given to them from Jesus previously in uh, chapter 9. Chapter 9 opens with, this, with these words. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Right, so he sends them out on this first mission with the power and authority to do this. They come back from the mission. They report what's happened. And now they're here uh, trying to accomplish this work. And they are not able to do so. They're not able to do so. They have a lack of power and ability in this particular situation. And so they're made, away, made aware of their inability, of their powerlessness, that they cannot accomplish this. Next we see uh, that there is a lack of, of faith. The crowd, they trust in signs and wonders. They expected these things from the disciples. They're looking to, to be wowed and awed. They're putting their hope in uh, these performative actions, these performative works. And so they need to increase in faith. Now, again, as we've said many times before, this doesn't mean that they need to believe harder. A lack of faith does not mean that you need to like try to increase that by believing more authentically or more uh, with, with more fervor. That's not what it's talking about. Because your faith is only as good as the object in which you are placing it. And so if they had faith in the disciples to accomplish this, all that was demonstrated was that the disciples, you can't trust them fully. They failed. They were not able to accomplish it. So as the object of faith, they weren't able to do it. So they need to find an object of faith that will not fail, that will not let them down. They're looking, they, they need to look at Jesus, who will be faithful, who will never fail, who will accomplish this. Third, there is a lack of submission to authority. Jesus is not recognized as the king and ruler over all. They should have gone to him. They should have waited for him. They should have made sure that he was the one that was there. They don't recognize who he is, right? And Jesus knows this because look at what he says in verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? How long am I to, uh, to be with you and bear with you? So he rebukes this audience, calling them faithless. He rebukes them, uh, equating them with uh, the... Uh, old Israel and the, uh, calling them a perverse generation. This is uh, anchored in Israel's ancient history. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. 
They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Jesus is saying, you guys are stubborn. You're just like the children uh, of Israel in the wilderness. You don't want to trust. You don't want to follow God. Verse 20 of Deuteronomy 32. And he said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, a children in whom there is no faithfulness. A lack of faithfulness. Numbers 14, verse 11. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? So Jesus starts saying these things to them that would be fresh in their minds, that would be like anchored in their history. Be like, oh shoot, he's using the same words on us that were, were said to, to Moses, that were said of the children of Israel. Like, we don't want to be those people. These are meant to, to awaken them and be like, oh, we don't want to be those people. We don't want to be faithless. We don't want to be a people who are uh, rejecting him. Now, Jesus rebukes this unbelief. But I want you to catch one thing here. He's not down on the disciples. He's not down on the disciples for their inability to cast out this demon. He doesn't show up and he's like, what's wrong with you guys? Like, why couldn't you do this? Like, you, I expected you guys to be able to, he, that's not, he doesn't say anything about that. There's no condemnation for, for inability or inadequacy. Jesus loves when we're inadequate. He loves when we're absolutely weak because then he can be strong. So the weaker you are, the more inadequate you are, the more Jesus is like, okay, well, like, I got this. They're not chastised. They're not, they're not uh, spoken to or disciplined for being weak. None of that happens. What is called out is being faithless and unbelief, not trusting him. It's fine if you want to be weak as long as you're willing to trust in him to be strong. This is what Jesus is getting at. And so then he tells this man, bring your son here. I got this. So because there's so much unbelief that's present, because they need to see that the disciples failed, but they need something to put their faith in, he's like, okay, well, bring me the son. I'm going to deal with him. He's going to give them someone to put their faith in. He's going to demonstrate his authority. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. So the boy approaches Jesus. The demon takes control over him, throws him to the ground in this like super violent way. The, the word that's used there of like he threw him is the idea of um, like a boxer giving like a, a knockout blow. Like this is a knockout punch the, the, um, or like a, a wrestler kind of pulling off like a finishing move there to to finally bring down an opponent. And so as he comes to Jesus, there's this one last, one last uh, attack. The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. He begins to have uh, these, this violent shaking. So how does Jesus deal with it? He rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Jesus is not impressed 
by this show of, of uh, terror and, and destruction. He's not impressed in the least bit. As much as this demon was trying to put on these, uh, this outward scary showing, just like the, the, the Sea of Galilee was tumultuous and chaotic, heaving with the wind, in an instant, it's calm. Jesus deals with the problem quickly. He rebukes the unclean spirit. He heals the boy and returns him to the father. Luke makes almost no description about like exactly things he says or sort of tries to draw it out. There's no wild formula. There's no performative action. There's no waving of the hands or, 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 or movements. The solution is described in simple and straightforward terms. There's not a grand performance to be witnessed. There's no pomp and circumstance that takes place. Instead, we find absolute power, absolute authority of the king on display. The king speaks, and it is so. That's it. It's straightforward. He says the word, and it is accomplished. And so here we find Jesus shown as having authority over all things, while the disciples are powerless. Now, as you think about this, I'm sure many of you have in your minds the, 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 the background of the other Gospels. Right? Perhaps you're, you're looking at it and being like, well, why couldn't they cast it out? Why couldn't they do it? Why could we not do this, Jesus? And the disciples are, are, are even confused why they couldn't do it in the, other, in the other Gospels. But Luke doesn't touch it. He doesn't bring it up. Because it's not the point. It's not the point for you to figure out, like, well, how do I do this next time? The point of it here was to be, to say, if your faith was in the disciples to do this, you're trusting in the wrong thing. The point is that Jesus is faithful. We're not meant to answer that question like, well, how do I make sure that I get it right next time? How do I come prepared next time? The, the end answer of that is trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Be with him. Be connected to him. It's not about figuring out how you can accomplish these things so that way you're ready, that way you're not going to fail. You're going to fail. Be weak so that he can be strong. Follow him wherever he goes. And if he leads you to be equipped for that, then he's going to lead you to be equipped for that. But if he's not, then he's not. You're not going to get around him either way, so you might as well just go with him. As they see this, they're not impressed with the disciples. They are instead in awe of the work of God. This is how Luke describes it for us in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So the crowd's reaction is amazement. They're blown away. They're like, this is crazy. I cannot believe that this just happened. They see the greatness on display. I love the description here uh, of, of this particular word majesty, as you look at the original language, it, it, it means the quality of being unsurpassed. 
Like, without comparison, nothing can surpass who Jesus is. His majesty is on display. His character for all to see. But something, something uh, more intense is also happening here. Okay? Because Peter uses this same, this word only occurs like three times. But Peter uses this same word in his epistle, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He describes the transfiguration himself. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that, that same word majesty that's there, it only occurs very, it occurs very few times, but one of the other places it occurs is in Peter's epistle. He says that on the Mount Transfiguration, it was there that we witnessed his unsurpassing quality. We witnessed his glory, who he is. And so when Luke writes here, he's, he's suggesting to us that this work of casting out the unclean spirit, this authority that's being demonstrated, the healing of the boy, is the same majesty that's being displayed for all to see at the foot of the mountain. Peter, James, John, they got to witness majesty on the mountain. But Jesus was sure that he wanted to make, he wanted to make absolutely sure that the people who weren't on the mountain didn't miss out. You get to see who I am as well. The remaining disciples, the great crowd, they get to witness his majesty as well. They get to come away encouraged. They get to be in awe of who he is. And the disciples, they still have a lot to learn. Like, they still have a ways to go, right? We're, like, not even halfway through the gospel. But they have a ton to learn. But they need to learn that Jesus is in control, and he overcomes all spiritual forces, all opposition. As he comes down off the mountain, as he meets the people at the bottom, he confronts this demonic opposition that attacks the only son. Not just this child, but is opposing the son of God as well. The demonic activity is there to oppose and to prevent Jesus from having victory. As he comes down off of the mountain, this is also a reminder of Jesus. What you experienced on the mountain, Jesus, that, that, uh, that pre-ascension glory that is being revealed about who you, who you will be and what will come, you still got a ways to go as well. You still have to come down and face the demonic activity. You still have to face the grip that Satan has on this world. You've got to complete the journey. If Jesus doesn't complete his journey, if he doesn't go to the cross, then the disciples will ultimately be powerless. They ultimately will not have what they need to accomplish what he's called them to do. They will not be able to demonstrate this power and authority that he's entrusted to them. 
at all if he does not have victory. If the king does not have victory, then his subjects do not operate under his authority. They don't have what they need. And so he's coming off one mountain to be reminded of what awaits. That he himself will have to come down off of, of these peak experiences where he meets with his father, where the sonship is declared, and will have to climb once and for all the final mountain at Calvary, where his sonship will be declared at the cross, where he will call out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That final declaration of his work, the mountain, the only son, and then he goes into death to defeat Satan and sin. To go to battle with demonic activity. To put an end to it once and for all. The demonic battles the only son. John puts it this way for us in his first uh, epistle in chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's come to win, to have victory once and for all. But I think Paul uh, gives us the perfect picture of this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, He, uh, you were dead in your trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay, get this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, here it is, the demonic activity, the rulers and authorities. That's what he's speaking of. The rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A final victory taken place. And of course, we see this victory uh, acknowledged by God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He was declared, this is Jesus, to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you have all those things there, the resurrection, this uh, re-elevating of who Jesus is, uh, his sonship declared. And then for us, that becomes effective uh, as described in Romans chapter 4, verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, uh, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's the mountain, the declaration of the only son, the battle with demonic activity over the only son, and then the victory. Rinse and repeat no further. He has won. He has accomplished it. And he's done it in such a way so that you and I can then operate in the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we can live for him victoriously in this life. That we can live out of his power and his authority. We can live under his rule and reign. And so we don't have to be a people who are living with lack. Recall that this group of people lacked power and ability, something that we do not lack 
because we've been given the Holy Spirit. Faith is not something that we need to lack because we have a, a Savior who is faithful to the end, who will never let us down. And if we would only submit to his authority, right, this is, this is our big weak spot. We don't want to submit. We want to wrestle it to the ground. We want to be king, but he's the king. They had a lack of submission to his authority, but it's our opportunity to acknowledge him as exalted, our opportunity to acknowledge him as the king and to respond as such. This is our call as his people, to acknowledge the king, to come under his authority, to live for his glory. And so we want to respond as these people did in verse 43, we want to be astonished at the majesty, the glory, the beauty of the king. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your faithfulness that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. That when we fall short, you have already made a way to cover our sin, to welcome us into repentance. And so we come this morning acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our poverty of spirit, acknowledging that we need you, we need help, and we don't want to pretend. We want you to see us transparently and to have your way in us so that we might operate under your strength, that we might acknowledge that you are the King and the Savior of the world. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church as we respond, as we worship you now. We love you. Amen.